0: This is not available for CoJet credit. Good afternoon. Uh, it is now afternoon, so I can say afternoon. This is our annual hearing officer roundtable. This is our opportunity to interact with you all, for you to Ask questions to give us feedback, we did solicit questions in advance, uh, and so we have pre-prepared some, but you can go ahead and pepper us with questions if you want today. Uh, Thank you to those of you who did join us on time, uh, and uh, it is good to see you. I'm, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Charles Adornetto, I'm the Judicial Education Officer. We're joined by Associate Presiding Judge Lenore Triggs. Uh, we're joined by Judge Kathy Riggs, who is the chair of the Pro Tem Hearing Officer and Mediator mm-hmm. Committee, and we are joined at least in part by, uh, um, or uh, I'm sorry, and we may have uh, we may have uh, Judge um, Huberman, our presiding judge, joining us later if she can uh, finish her protective order hearings. And of course, Taj Rahi Liu, who is the Administrative Pro Tem, uh, so we're we're pleased to see you all today. And does anyone have anything before we get started with what we pre-prepared? All right, we'll go ahead and get started. So the the first thing is we, because uh, there was some question about small claims procedures, and. We've set aside an hour for the roundtable and didn't want to spend the whole hour doing what we've done in other sessions. Uh, So back in January, we did do trainings for our new hearing officers and those are logged on uh, YouTube. And so you can find the materials at that link and you can find the webinars at at that link. Uh, So if you want to review, go ahead and uh, watch those sessions. Uh, and and hopefully that will answer many of the questions that you might have. I do want to talk about our presumptive appearances. We do have an administrative order. This was required by the Supreme Court, and so then in conjunction with the presiding Superior Court Judge Judge uh, Joseph Welty. Uh, We do have presumptive appearances for both small claims and civil traffic, and uh, that does require that um, they are presumed to be done remotely, that if there are particular reasons why that can change, uh, then a judge can do that on an individual basis. Uh, But presumptively, small claims hearings are presumed to be done remotely. Uh, civil traffic is also uh, presumptively remote. Okay, here we go. So. Uh, just as a small claims review. Remember jurisdiction is $3,500 or less exclusive of interest costs and fees that applies to both uh, claims and counterclaims. Counterclaims can be based on a different event if they are the same party. So what we we would call that in civil procedure is the difference between a mandatory counterclaim and a permissive counterclaim. With a mandatory counterclaim, if it's based on the same event, it needs to be filed as a counterclaim. So a defendant in a contract case or in a tort case cannot lose one case and then file against the same plaintiff for something that could have been brought as a counterclaim, and in fact, should have been brought as a counterclaim. Uh, so, uh, and, and, and the reason for that should be obvious. I mean, we want just one case to resolve all of the claims out of one situation. Uh, we don't want to have somebody continually returning to court for that. The reason we allow permissive counterclaims and and permissive is permissive. That means we can go ahead and try to resolve all of the claims between the same parties in the same court setting. Uh, But if it's not based on the same event, then that can be brought as a different lawsuit. Anthony?
1: Yeah, I have a question. So this is something that the uh, court would catch prior to it getting into the courtroom, right? Because we wouldn't have. Uh, exposure to, say, the case, Not we wouldn't necessarily have exposure to the case that was coming back on something that had already been adjudicated.
0: You know, I can't guarantee that it's been caught, and we don't have motions, for the most part, in small claims, so it is possible that it might reach you for something that should have been brought as an original counterclaim, and so if a, if a party says, you know, we've already been here, Done this, you might want to continue the case to let someone look at that uh and okay. see and, and and ensure that we're not giving people the same bite of the apple. And, yeah, of- yeah. You know, we don't have sophisticated parties on on either side generally. Uh the next point is there's no splitting claims to qualify. And so what that means is you can't if if the total Promissory note is ten thousand. You can't bring three different small claims uh, to to do three thousand in each. That if it's oh if they want if it's over thirty five hundred and they want all thirty five hundred, um, or or if they want they can either reduce to thirty five hundred and waive the rest, or they go file cool. in either justice court or superior court. And if there is a claim that does exceed 3,500, that will be transferred to the civil division uh, automatically. Uh, We don't allow someone to file a counterclaim of over 3,500 just to get out of small claims. uh, So that would need to be reviewed if, if that doesn't look valid. And of course we know that small claims are often debt collection or civil disputes or security deposit disputes between landlords and tenants. And I've used the word torts and contracts a couple times now. We are gonna have a session being taught by Judge Gerald Williams and by Judge Heidi Owens on uh, contracts and torts for hearing officers and mediators. We have that scheduled, I believe in a couple of weeks. Uh, And so uh, that should be a really good class if you if you need some brushing up on torts and contracts. Uh, And we also have a civil traffic session being taught tomorrow that uh, I believe is always valuable. And so remember, the venue is where the defendant lives or where it's permitted by ARS 22-202. There are some exceptions to when venue can be uh, appropriate where the defendant doesn't live. So if there's a question of that, look carefully at the statute. It can be heard in a different justice court if there is jurisdiction and the defendant fails to object. And the uh, last point there is no Doe's. That doesn't mean that no Homer Simpson. No Doe's mean that the party needs to be specifically named. It can't be a John Doe or a Jane Doe uh, you, you can never have a John Doe or a Jane Doe on a judgment in small claims. Uh, the only place we actually can do that uh, is for evictions. Uh, and that's in, and you'll see one of the reasons for that is because there's no amending of small claims complaints. So you, you can't sue a Jane Doe and then later find out her name and then try to amend the complaint because there are no amendments. So there are no does. And then we did have a question about the um, about how to service. And so we do find the answer in ARS 22 513. So in addition to any other available methods of service, the plaintiff may serve the summons and complaint by registered or certified mail service is deemed complete on the date of delivery of the registered or certified mail to the defendant as indicated on the return receipt that is received and filed with the court either in person or by first class mail. Uh, If the date of delivery was not entered by the postal carrier or is illegible, service is deemed complete on on the date the return receipt is received and filed with the court either in person or by first class mail. The clerk of the Small Claims Division of the Justice Court may make service by certified restricted mail return receipt requested. All right, and so we do have a question. Plaintiff sends registered mail to the defendant company and the statutory agent at their common address. Mailing is signed for by a third party, probably a company employee, who did check the receipt box for agent. In the answer, the defendant owner claims that he was not properly served since he as the statutory agent did not sign for the mail. Was this acceptable service? And in and this answer, and, and as you're going to see, when we go through personal service, uh, My answer is it doesn't matter who signs the certified mail as long as it was sent to the correct address. And that's because um, you'll see, well, you you do see that when um, someone is served at the residence, as long as they're of suitable age and they reside at the residence, then that is appropriate service. So I do think that that is appropriate service. Uh, reasonable people can disagree. And there are judges who do believe that it has to be the actual defendant who does accept that certified mail. So I do suggest that you do um, find out from the judge if that judge is one of the ones who will require that. Um, you know, I, I think that is going to create more issues because uh, I I could sign for certified mail and sign Mickey Mouse and I don't know that the postal service checks my identification uh, and ensures that I'm not Mickey Mouse at the time that I'm accepting that. So I think that raises more questions than not. Uh, of course, if the person has filed an answer or if shows up and says that service was not proper, uh, my response is, well, you're here. So it does appear that you, you got it. Uh, that would be a different answer than if somebody did move to set aside a default claiming that service was not appropriate. I would look at that more carefully and then look to see whether or not there is. uh, Because what we're concerned about is whether or not the defendant was put on notice of this complaint and had the opportunity to appear. Uh, And if they've got a statutory agent and it went to the address of the statutory agent, that to me is proper service. If it went to the right house, that's proper service. But if there is a question uh, as to whether or not they got it, then we do want to err on the side of of, uh, decision on the merits. And so to look at the rules for personal service, we do look at the Superior Court Rules of Civil Procedure, and that is in 4.1, so we can deliver personally, And for that, you leave a copy at the dwelling with someone of suitable age who resides there. Suitable age case law has said that can be as low as 14. Um, I've met 14 year olds. Uh, I'm not sure that I would agree that that is suitable, uh, but that has been decided that as low as 14 can in fact be suitable. So, uh, you know, hopefully the, the process servers made it clear to, to that person that you need to let your parents know about this. Uh, delivering a copy to an agent authorized by appointment or by law to receive service of process. So that is the statutory agent. When we do have a minor under 16, we have to serve both a minor and the parent or guardian. And if it's a, uh, an adjudicated incompetent, uh, has a guardian or conservator, then the actual defendant and the guardian or conservator and has to be served as well. All right, I don't know if your slide has changed yet. Mine, for some reason, is really slow. Okay, there we go. Corporation, or we're still in Rule 4.1 for a corporation or partnership uh, delivering to a partner, an officer, a managing or general agent, or any other agent authorized by appointment or by law to receive service of process. Uh, And uh, if the agent is one authorized by statute and the statute so requires, by also mailing a copy. And then uh, in ARS Section 10 504B, If a corporation fails to appoint or maintain a statutory agent, the corporation commission is an agent of the corporation on whom process notice or demand may be served. If that's the situation, then there may be additional time that is allowed to file an answer. Uh, The same if the uh, defendant is out of state. Uh, And you'll see if service is made on the commission, the corporation has 30 days to respond. All right. So, any other questions about service? All right. I do then want to talk to uh, the rules about parties, and so for this, we are looking at rules two, four, and nine. So, uh, for two, uh, as as I indicated, the use of the correct name. A plaintiff must use the party's correct legal name when filing a lawsuit. Each defendant must be sued by the correct legal name. Uh, And then you look at 4C, uh, no amendments. Amended complaints are not allowed, but a plaintiff may dismiss the complaint and file a new lawsuit. And then you look at 9, no um, amended counterclaims either. Uh, So that's why And it's interesting because the Justice Court and Superior Court rules also say that you have to use the correct legal name, uh, but those do allow amending. Uh, Here, there are no amendments. And so this is how you get to the no-dos. And uh, are are there any questions about this? Do, Do we have questions about amended complaints or does this seem unfair to anyone? Oh, and back to the the service question, I, I know a few years ago that there was a, a question about whether service by publication would be available uh, in small claims. A few years ago, I would have said yes, uh, before the small claims rules of civil procedure, uh, the small claims rules of procedure, uh, because it was a legal means of service, but now with the new rules of small claims procedure, service by publication does not work in the timeframes that we have to schedule uh, these. So it's it's really not an option. You know, the, the whole, to me, the, the biggest advantage of being in small claims is being allowed to serve by certified mail. You, you, you can't do that in superior court Um, That, uh, I mean, that is the real reason, the the, the big benefit to being in small claims. Uh, And if you can't figure out how to serve them by certified mail, well, I guess that's on you. Elwood. In
1: terms of use of the correct legal name, if the person says, well, they didn't put my middle name on this, or they didn't put junior or something like that, as long as the how strict is that as long as there's no question about the identity of the person who is a party to the action?
0: Uh, yeah, a middle name or a junior I, I would not, I, I would not accept that as a proper defense. I, I think if, if it's able to identify who the plaintiff is, and I mean, and look at what the con- look at what the contract is, if they've used whatever name is in the contract, then um, to me that would be presumptively correct where the real issue is going to be if the name is not. If, if, if the name is not clear is then if they're later going to try to file um, a garnishment and, and the person can come in and claim that that's not me. So it's certainly to their benefit to ensure that the name is correct, but something as Picayune as the middle name um, or a junior or senior, to me, is is not going to preclude that. Where you're going to have the issue is with LLCs. Uh, And so if they're suing a personal person when and the person comes in and says, no, no, uh, I did this as an LLC, so they needed to sue the LLC. Again, you may need to look at the contract to see who actually had the legal obligation to do whatever they were supposed to do, and if it does appear that it should have been brought against the LLC and they brought it against a person, well, then the plaintiff's out of luck because you cannot amend to amend it to the LLC. The solution is, as it says in 4C, is, you know, they can dismiss this complaint and go ahead and we'll We'll come back after I serve you with a new one, Warner.
1: Yes, kind of following up what you were just saying about an LLC. If a party brings a suit against a business, and let's just say it's Acme Pool Service, and that's who they and they've got a storefront says Acme Pool Service, but they don't do their due diligence to see who the true owner is—the LLC—and it's just Acme Pool Service can the party representing the Acme pool service say it wasn't filed per my legal name, the LLC, would that be a good defense for
0: them? It is a defense, whether or not it's a good defense, I think is going to be up to you. Again, I would look at whatever documents you have. Is there a contract? Is there a, a bill of sale? Is there a receipt? And does that say ACME pool sales, LLC, or does it just say ACME pool sales? Um, again, if, if you do proceed and grant judgment to the plaintiff, the real issue might be later when they try to collect on that judgment. Uh, but for you know ACME pool sales, uh, it, it's kind of hard to say I'm not the ACME pool sales that is the subject of this complaint when it's pretty clear that they are. So, that you know, that it is a defense. Whether it is a good defense is going to be up to you. You are the judge.
1: Okay, great. Thank you.
0: And I, I do want to clarify this point, and, and I've been trying to. Uh, Make sure that everyone is on the same page about this uh, because there's a misperception out there that pain and suffering cannot be awarded in justice court. Pain and suffering can be awarded in justice court and in small claims. Punitive damages can be awarded in justice court and in small claims uh, we'll we'll talk more about this in in other sessions, but you know here is and and we could talk about how this misperception came about because I'm not sure how that came about. I I know there's uh, in the past there's been an emphasis on we want receipts so that we can calculate damages, and certainly receipts are maybe the best evidence of how to calculate damages, but receipts are not the only way to calculate damages. Testimony is evidence, and testimony that I spent $600, I don't have a receipt, but I spent $600 to do this, is evidence. You might not believe it, it's not you know, wonderful evidence. Um, the person might be lying through their teeth, but it is evidence. So you cannot say that there was no evidence of damages. What you can say is that the evidence presented as to damages was not convincing. It did not meet the burden of proof. So what is pain and suffering? The the best definition for pain and suffering, uh, pain and suffering is generally three times the medical expenses Um, That is. Is what um, attorneys will ask for when you get the the big ticket torts. Uh, it's, it's just it, it's an estimate. There there is no better real definition for pain and suffering. And uh, so there there aren't there isn't other than the medical expenses where there should be receipts for that or could be receipts for that, there isn't going to be paper evidence of what payment suffering is. That is going to be up to you as the judge. And and that is permitted in small claims. Um, is there any question about that? Yes, Mike.
1: Charlie, is it
0: still though the, the cap at 3,500? Uh, does everything it is, have to stay behind below that 3,500? Thank you, it is still capped at 3,500 and that ties directly into the punitive damages as well. So punitive damages can be awarded in justice court and punitive damages can be awarded in small claims. And just like I, the point that I made with the evidence is, there's a difference between saying, I cannot award punitive damages from I will not award punitive damages Okay, it is not correct to say I cannot award punitive damages. And and the reason I say this is we did have a pro tem judge get dinged by the Judicial Conduct Commission because that judge didn't know that she could award punitive damages. Well, you can. Um, Now, you shouldn't. You probably shouldn't. It's going to have to be pretty extreme for you to award punitive damages. I would also want to make sure that the complaint asked for punitive damages uh, just to ensure that the defendant is aware that they they could be um, held more liable for what they thought they could be held liable for. And as Mike just pointed out, you are still gonna be limited to 3,500. So you're not going above 3,500 for those punitive damages. Um, is, is there a situation where if someone asks for punitive damages and you should award it, uh, again, that's up to you. Uh, Just don't go over the 3,500 if you're going to do that. You probably want to do that on the record uh, because otherwise there's not going to be an explanation to the defendant of of that. Mary.
2: Okay, I want to emphasize that you did say that the plaintiff must ask for the punitive damages. We as the hearing officer cannot just award because we feel that the plaintiff deserves that damage, correct?
0: And that is what I said. Um, there there might be others who might decide that, you know what, um, the plaintiff didn't ask for it, but I'm so offended that I'm going to award punitive damages that uh, I, Think that would be pretty rare of a situation for me to do that because I, I do want the defendant to be on notice of what they might be liable for before they they um, come into the hearing.
2: And I agree with that statement. They have to be notified. So I don't so, feel I would not award without them asking because there has to be a due process. Thank so
3: you. can can I? Can I chime in on this just briefly, Charlie?
0: Yes.
3: So Mary, I had not responded to yet on your question that you sent me because I was discussing it with Charles. um, And I think your segue as to this issue leads Directly to the question that you had asked about in the context of a small claim suit for security deposit uh, that was withheld and not returned under what is it thirty three thirteen twenty one um, within the time frame that statutorily required. As you've heard, Charles believes that it should be alleged in the complaint before treble damages are awarded um, in those circumstances. I interpret the statute a little differently. And my understanding in speaking with Charles is that different minds can disagree. So in my thought process, specifically as it relates to security deposits and a suit for failure to return a security deposit, because the statute does not specifically require the person to have triggered that by requesting it, unlike the language that it uses in requiring that the tenant demand the itemized list, I think that appropriate notice is provided by the fact that they're making the claim, the individual failed to return my security deposit. The defense to that is, did you or did you not return the security deposit? I don't believe that your defense is damaged or the ability to present a defense to that claim is damaged by not knowing that the individual is seeking troubled damages. Um, I think in uh, response to the analogy you made to criminal cases, I think the standard is higher in a criminal case that we need to allow those defendants to know the potential exposure and liability that they have because they're looking at a potential loss of liberty, um, but in a civil type of suit, I don't think given that the potential harm is as great, it's simply um, a monetary trouble damage. I think that they have all of the notice and due process that they need by knowing what's being claimed, uh, what what's being alleged against them. And they have the ability to file a defense. And if they don't do so, I think that the court can, within its discretion, impose up-to-trouble damages if they feel that the merits of the case warrant it. Um, and that's just my perspective and thought on it, but clearly different minds will have different thoughts
0: on that. All right. Thank you. Uh, and so small claims rule one does show that those damages are available. And then the next slide is. Um, punitive damages and we'll see that in in limited jurisdiction, small claims materials, they do talk about punitive damages and that's a situation where, uh, where punitive damages could be appropriate. So some hearing tips. Remember the formal rules of evidence do not apply, but evidence must be reliable, not prejudicial, relevant, and non-privileged. Uh, you should follow the bench book and maintain trial procedure. So allow opening statements. I have the plaintiff present their case, uh, allow cross-examination. Uh, have the defendant present their case, allow cross-examination. Allow the plaintiff a rebuttal, and then have closing statements. The the big mistake is to not is to not allow cross examination. Of course, with SRLs, self represented litigants, it can be painful, uh, but you you do need to allow cross examination. Um, Do not ask too many questions, but you can ask questions to clarify, not investigate. Uh, So just just investigate. Um, One of the things you always want to say to a party before you you go to the other party is, is there anything else you want to present or say before I make a ruling? And then if you can explain your ruling, Uh, it's better than to just get it, um, have them get it in writing. Warner? So Charles, when you say to allow the cross-examination,
1: do you mean that after the plaintiff is through speaking, presenting their case to allow the defendant to examine the plaintiff and the evidence they introduced? Or do you mean yes. that the court provide that cross-examination?
0: No, no, no. That, that That's the previous. Don't ask too many questions. You allow the defendant to ask to cross-examine. You say to the defendant, do you have any questions of the plaintiff?
1: Okay. And the reason why I ask is because typically what I say is that the conversation is going to be between the plaintiff and the court and the defendant and the court, that the two parties have had a chance to work this out. And that's why we're here, because basically it just quickly de escalates into an argument. So I'm hearing you say that no, you really need to allow them to have some back and forth. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh-
0: to the extent that it can be done without it breaking down into an argument, and you can you can cut that off pretty quickly. You you just you have any questions of the plaintiff, and if uh, they start testifying or arguing, you know, just immediately stop them, and say a question is short, um, short to the point, and ends with a question mark. And if and if you know they don't have questions, then you move on but you you do allow that and if if they totally are incapable of doing that you can then say to them what is it you want the plaint? what do you what is it you want to ask the plaintiff about and another thing i'll say to the parties is um you know you're not perry mason you're you're not going to have a perry mason moment with this person um they're not going to almost certainly not going to give you the answer you want, and you have to live with the answer they give you, Uh, and that can generally curtail that. Mary?
2: Yes, Um, I too am like Warner. I have them speak to me because we only have 30 minutes. I have to find out what I need to know to rule on the case. I do give them Opportunity to ask a question if they do so wish, and I'm and I'm basing my the way I handle my trials under 22-516, which reads um, the hearing officer shall conduct the trial in such a manner to do justice between the parties and shall not be bound by formal rules of procedure, pleading or evidence. So I am hanging my hat on that statute that I can. I uh, actually ask the questions I need to know, and I do give them an opportunity to ask questions at the end. I said, is there anything else you you want me to know about this case that I have not already heard?
0: And, and you can rely upon that statute, and I would say that the principles of due process are mandatory principles. When One of the pro, uh, principles of due process is the ability to confront your accuser. Uh, and again, it doesn't have, they're not going to be Perry Mason. You, you don't have to give them a lot of time, but I do think you need to give the opportunity for them to ask any questions of the other party. That is certainly the case in, in Justice Court. That is where we're going to get a lot of complaints. The problem with asking a lot of questions, and you'll see that when we get to the slide that talks about common complaints, is the, you're gonna, you may give the appearance that you're not impartial. So we do want to be careful about that. And get reasonable minds can differ about how to, how to proceed. So my three questions to keep plaintiffs on point, uh, and, and I probably should copyright this. Um, one, why does the defendant owe you money? Two, how much? And three, how did you get to that number? If you limit your questions to that, you will not get in trouble. All right. And now is the point where we will, we will talk about interest rates and you get to hear somebody other than me. Uh, so I'll turn it over to Judge Triggs.
4: All right. Um, I don't know that we want to hear from other than Charlie because he's pretty good at all of this and pretty quick. But um, we have a best practice. Um, are you going to share that best practice, Charlie, or you want me to pull it up? It, it, is,
0: it, it is in your materials. I, I can. Okay. All right.
4: Good. Well, I'll look at it. So, um, the best practice um, in your materials talks about. Hold on, I'm trying to pull it up now because. Sure,
0: I'll, I'll pull it up.
4: Um, you know, the purpose is to foster excellence and to be consistent. Um, so, prejudgment interest is authorized if the amount of the debt is for a sum certain that is not in dispute. And so, you'll see prejudgment interest. And we're talking about small claims here, so it's not going to be huge amounts that we see sometimes in. Um, regular civil and then there'll be the post-judgment interest so you're going to whatever the contracted interest rate is assumed to be valid um but what we've always thought is that it's rebuttable if it's unconscionable so you'll hear the word unconscionable but then at the same time the legislature has made it legal to go up to 204 percent i think is what that is is when you compound the um certain amount per month becomes the 204%, which is a ton on a $500 loan. And then these people are asking for the judgment like four years later. Um, it's it's a huge amount of pre-interest on um, an original just $500 loan that they're asking for. Um, and then the post, um, post-judgment interest, while there's a presumption that the interest rate is valid, um, and if it's going to be unconscionable, if you determine that that's an unconscionable rate, then you would um, award post judgment on the principal rate of 10%, which is the amount by statute that if there is no agreed upon interest rate, then you're going to put it at 10%. Um, once there's a judgment, then you're going to do it um, on the interest rate. That is the um, the amount that the, what is that called? You know, the, yeah, the prime interest rate plus 1% is what we'll do. Right now, that's at 9.25%. So here's um, a case that I had. And this wasn't regular civil, but it's just kind of an interesting thing to look at. Um, Here we had a loan for $900. The person only paid like $50. And they had agreed to pay $913 for this loan for one year and then a total of $18,1368, right? So what I had just started doing on these was I would grant the contracted amount that they agreed upon through the maturity date. And up here in the, The part where it says promise to pay and it says at 180% per year until November 10th, 2017. That's this amount total of payments. And then after that, so I would grant the um, 180% until they reach the amount that they agreed to with the signature. And then I would move it down to 10%. Well, I had a pro tem come in. And if you want to scroll down, Charlie, um, they were asking, they came for this loan like in 2020. And they were wanting $7,000 now after uh, for this like $850 that was still owed. So the potem judge was like that's ridiculous and slashed it to $100 in interest and then 0% um, interest after that. And then like 4.25 is what our prime rate was um, at that time. And then for you know interest going forward. And it really upset the the plaintiff because she says that she carefully lends out this money to people who really need it. So she appealed and um, she won on appeal because there was no reason given that the pro tem had slashed it to $100 and the 0%. So anyways, it came back to me and I, I used the best practice but it got appealed again. And then the new appellate judge was like, no, whatever signed in the contract that sticks and that has to be what it is. So anyways, you don't have appeals in small claims, so you don't have to worry as much and it's not going to be as big of amount, but just know that, um, you know, these can look be unconscionable. Fortunately, there's the the 3,500 um, cap here, um, but the interest going forward can accrue. And so if you're going to keep it at the 200%, that could still hurt somebody at the end. So if you want again, there's there's no appeal here, but um, the the whole point with the whole appeal was to explain why you're changing the contracted interest amount. So if you have an argument as to why you slashed it to 10% you could say it was unconscionable to keep it at 200%, whatever. That kind of thing, but we do have that best practice right there and it is good to explain why you do things.
2: Charlie, you can add to that. Uh, Mary. Okay, I wanna make that very clear in my head that we can, on the judgment, give a 10% interest rate rather than the 180. Is that correct? Judge Driggs? If you're saying that
4: this amount is unconscionable, And you at least give what I would say in the truth in lending statement shows how much they agreed to pay for that one year. Sometimes it's a six-month loan. Um, One of the appellate judges did say, if you argue that the legislative intent was for quick loans, not for perpetually, you know, an indefinite loan for the rest of your life, you're going to be paying this interest rate. They wanted these to be like, just like this um, company was called Spot Me Loan. It's just like I need a quick loan, I'm going to pay it off quickly. The intent of the legislature, you could argue, is that they meant for this interest rate to be quick, just like the loan, and that you're not going to let it, you know, accrue that much interest forever, but that you will give that much interest for the amount that they signed on, which was for one year, and then from that point going forward,
2: um, 10%. Yes. Okay. Got it. Perfect. Thank you. All
0: right uh any and then uh the rest of this and in, in that book I, I did amend the slide after i sent out your materials but uh just a reminder for medical debt contracts after december 5 uh, the maximum interest rate is three percent per year it's actually the lesser of the annual rate equal to the weekly average one-year constant maturity treasury yield is published by the board of governors of the federal reserve system for the calendar week preceding the date when the consumer was first provided with a bill or 3% a year? And, and I did ask um, some of the providers, how in the world are you going to know what the treasury yield is on the week, the preceding the date the consumer was first provided with the bill? The answer was, I don't know. So we're just going to do 3%. Warner. Um, so just a quick follow-up, uh, Judge
1: Driggs, on the 10%, if there's been a lapse of time, say, two years that now you're going to impose this 10 percent, do you take a short recess and go out to the Internet and find an interest rate calculator to figure it all out? Or how do you figure out the amount? I mean, the 10 percent interest is good, but now you got to come up with a true value.
4: Yes, you do have to take a recess to figure out the whole amount because it. It can be complicated. I was training a pro tem once and she said I went to law school because I didn't want to do math. <laughs> so it can be kind of complicated.
0: And and okay, I don't thank you I, I don't do math. I will say and ten percent after this date, accruing after this date. All right. Anything else on interest rates? All right, so there was a question about, can uh, people amend at the hearing? And it I thought that referred to small claims. Uh, Judge Huberman thought it appeared, uh, applied to civil traffic, so I've answered both, okay? So for small claims, the, it's an easy answer. The answer is no. For civil traffic, it's a little harder. So civil traffic rule 9A says, and by the way, what was the question? Who 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 asked that question? No one will own up to it all right mike was it you uh, okay all right so no, civil civil traffic rule 9a a court may amend a complaint at any time before judgment if no additional or different violation is charged and if no substantial right of the defendant is prejudiced and a court may amend a complaint to conform to the evidence adduced at a hearing if no additional or different violation is charged and if no substantial right of the defendant is prejudiced. So that, that means you can't make it a more serious um, charge. The problem is who can ask for an amendment? And my concern is if you look at civil traffic rule two, the officer is a witness. The officer is not a party. So, uh, and, and if, I think it's Rule 15, the only motion an officer can make is to continue the hearing. The officer cannot move to amend by rule. That is my interpretation. Um, there are others who who think that an officer can move to amend. Um, I do not. The, the problem we have here is masking uh, because you're gonna have an attorney show up uh, and say, Good news, Your Honor, Uh, I've met with the officer and we've entered into a plea agreement and we're amending the charge. Uh, Like, no, 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 no. The officer is not an attorney. The, The officer is not a party. The officer cannot be entering into plea agreements and cannot be amending the charges. To me, the issue is officer, you cited this person with a moving violation. Can you prove that moving violation today? And if the answer is yes, then my answer is, then we're going to proceed with that moving violation. Um, yeah, if, if if and and we'll talk about this tomorrow in the civil traffic class because uh, there are f- concerns with the, the with the federal government uh, if we start taking these trucking violations, uh, the commercial driving violations, and make moving violations into non move non moving violations in an attempt to mask the moving violation. We are concerned with commercial driver's license holders who continually commit um, driving moving violations uh, for safety reasons. So for that, I'm pretty careful about not allowing the officer uh, to amend the charges as part of a plea agreement If, if it's pretty clear, like, for example, where I think this would apply. Is if you're at the hearing and um, the officer has cited the defendant for going 33 miles over the speed limit, and the evidence may have shown that the defendant only went 28 miles over the speed limit. Can can we amend at that point to to change to that? Uh, Can we amend the citation to add a middle name? You know? but not to change a moving violation into a seat belt violation. So, uh, and uh, again, others may disagree with that. And and so, you know, my evidence, I, I mean, my answer with that and with uh, with a lot of what we've talked about today is talk to the judge that, that you're working for and, and get their feel for how they will handle certain of these issues, in, in, including this one. So, do we have any questions on that? All right, and then our next slide is tips from common complaints. Taj, did you want to handle that?
3: Sure. So, the common complaints that I see relating to hearing officers is really demeanor. A lot of times, and it's very similar to what was touched on in yesterday's ethics uh jet if you were present, a lot of times people are unhappy with the ruling and they translate that to the judge was not nice to me, the judge was rude, the judge was unprofessional because they did not like the ruling that occurred. However, sometimes what I've seen in recordings is while um, demeanor did not rise to the level that it was a violation for of a canon for example it was perhaps not as courteous as we would hope that our judicial officers are to litigants and witnesses who appear in front of them and so my advice for that is and and i know that um dealing with some of these litigants can be very challenging um, Frequently, particularly in cases like small claims and also a a lot of times in civil traffic, these are self-represented litigants. They are not familiar with a legal proceeding. They don't know how a hearing is supposed to flow, even when they've been given that information at the start of the proceeding from the hearing officer or judicial officer. Uh, they interrupt. They interrupt each other. They interrupt the judge. Um, they don't ask questions. They just make conclusory statements and, and make their argument. I know all of these things to be true. Nevertheless, it's always helpful if the judicial officer remains calm and courteous in speaking to them, because if you lose your temper, which can be um, can be displayed in the shortness that sometimes comes through in talking to them, or the way that you try to redirect them is a little more abrupt. Um, so, for example, instead of saying, um, "Sir, I understand," however. That isn't relevant to the issues that are before me that I need to hear and determine today. So I'm going to redirect you back to the issue, which is whatever. Um, Instead of saying it that way, sometimes I hear, stop talking, stop talking. You you keep talking, we're not having that anymore. That is um, obviously not going to go over well, even if the other individual has put you into a position or a mindset where you are frustrated and they're not doing what they need to do. So I would say to just remember even if the the demeanor isn't rising to the level where you violated a canon, just these these individuals who are in front of you, they're usually not legally trained. Um, they usually or sometimes don't even have um, the best general education. And this is a time of very high stress and high emotion. And they're not going to be on their best behavior frequently, but we still have to be on ours. So I would just remind you, because that is, I would say far and away, the largest number of um, complaints that I see. The individual was rude, unprofessional, didn't do a good job. And it all comes down to the way that they feel that they were treated or spoken to in the hearing. perceptions of bias. Again, I have heard complaints that they individuals feel that their case was prejudged or this, this judicial officer, I think, had already made up their mind about my case because of things that are said or because they feel that you were speaking to the other litigant um, before they came into the hearing room. So just make sure that if possible you know you you don't give that appearance that you've had any conversation with the other party um be mindful when you are addressing what you've heard or what you know about the case that you make it clear you know that from your review of the evidence that's been prevented uh, presented or from your review of the file before the hearing started don't leave it open-ended so that they can think that you got that information from the other party, particularly if the other party is already in the room before they came in. And, and I do mean the virtual room as well by that. Um, explaining the reasons for rulings. Um, sometimes we I've had some complaints where they feel that um, the judicial officer did not hear some pertinent or relevant information that they believe they, that they've testified to that they believe might have made a difference in the ruling. Um, it may be that the judicial officer heard that evidence, but didn't believe that the weight and the credibility of that evidence was sufficient to satisfy the burden of proof. And so they've ruled against that party. However, if that isn't explicitly stated in the ruling, the losing party doesn't know that and they just think well you didn't hear this or you didn't you didn't consider this evidence when that could all be alleviated by you simply stating on the record when you're issuing your ruling the court has heard the testimony of the plaintiff or the defendant that you know is contradicted by or you know disagreed with by the opposing party there was testimony to this and there was Conflicting testimony to that. The court has heard all of the evidence. However, the court has found whatever evidence to be more compelling or more credible or, you know, whatever reason you believe that one of the testimony or evidence that was pre- presented was more persuasive than the other. Um, if you put that on the record, then even if they don't like your ruling, they at least understand why you made it. Um, And those are the the largest number of complaints that I hear. Um, uh, The the judgments and dismissals, just, you know, make sure that you're being careful when you're dismissing with prejudice or without prejudice versus with prejudice, um, those kinds of issues. But I I don't see a lot of that. The, The majority is demeanor, followed probably by procedural justice issues and trailed behind with perception of bias. So those are the large majority of complaints that we see. Any
2: questions?
1: Yes. Uh, I have one. Yes. Okay, I'll go first. So not about anything specific that you just talked about, Taj, but just kind of a general question. Have all the courts been fully trained in teams And the reason that I asked is because as I go from different courts to different courts, sometimes the start of the calendar is delayed by 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and staff's running around. Nobody knows how to figure it out. And then we're kind of there apologizing for the lateness of our calendar. So, Is anybody else having this problem or is it just me? Let
3: let me answer for you. Yes. Yes, everyone is having the problems that you're having, not just hearing officers, pro-tems, mediators. We are aware that information has been passed up the chain. We, um, we, we've we had strategic planning meetings as an organization to discuss things that can help enhance and improve the quality of the service that we offer. And one of the things that is consistently noted as a problem is um, that inconsistency in technology, both in what courts have what technology and in which court staff and courts are skilled at helping our pro-tems hearing officers and mediators access that court technology. Um, It's a double-edged sword. Technology has made our lives much easier in a lot of ways, and it has enhanced the effectiveness of what service we can provide to the public at large. there are a lot of benefits to the use of our technology. Um, we've seen that more people appear for evictions, for court matters that they otherwise were defaulting on because we now allow for virtual appearances. Just as you guys can see, we have a lot more turnout when we have virtual cojet than we have had at times when we have it in person. It provides an ease of use and a convenience that really can't be duplicated in a lot of ways. But with those benefits, there is an underbelly to technology. Uh,
0: Mary?
2: Yes, I have a question. Todd, do you send complaints to the hearing officers when you receive complaints? So
3: the complaint process, yes and no. I send complaints if they require follow-up. My normal process is when I receive a complaint, I ask for information on the date, the court, uh, and the time where it appeared, and then I review the FTR. So the FTR really is your friend because a large number of those complaints, I don't have to reach out to you at all because I can see from the complaint alleged by the complainant and the FTR evidence that I view myself that the complaint doesn't have merit. And if that's the case, I don't bring it to you because that's not something you need to worry about. That's a large number of the complaints I receive. If, however, there's an issue of concern, perhaps there was a demeanor problem, or there was, um, and and frequently things are brought to me as demeanor issues, prof- lack of professionalism, um, rudeness, discourteous. And there may not be a demeanor issue, but when I'm reviewing the tape, I will discover that there was a legal ruling error. Um, then I will follow back up with the hearing officer pro tem, the the judicial officer, and let them know, hey, there was a concern that was brought to my attention. I had to view the FTR, and viewing the FTR, although the concern that was brought to me was not an issue, I did notice this other issue, and I want to bring it to your attention so that that doesn't repeat. I see it as a very learning, constructive criticism um, opportunity. It's not meant to be a, a ding or a you've done something wrong. It's meant to be a, hey, I noticed this legal error. You might want to read this statute or be aware that this is what the law requires so that you don't make the same error going forward. It's a learning opportunity. But if there's no problem that I view from the FTR, no, I don't bring the complaint to you.
2: Well, obviously,
1: I haven't gotten in. <laughs> right,
2: uh, that's good.
0: We are, we are over time. Uh, but, you know, if we've got a robust conversation going, I don't want to cut it off, and I hope you all found this valuable. Do we have anything else uh, for the good of the order?
3: Can I just, just say one more, thi- one more thing? One more thing to close up on the consistency. We are working on it. That's that's where I want to leave you with. Because yes, we are aware it is a problem. Yes, we are all discussing ways to solve that problem. We are working on it and hopefully we will have some solutions. But in the meantime, all I can do is apologize for the frustration that I know it creates for you. And it will vary from court to court. We're aware,
0: we're sorry, we're trying to find solutions.
1: Charles Warner here, one more t- one one last thing. Can you just
0: the lack of consistency is Judge Driggs' fault. So, if you have any, uh, you know, complaints about that, uh, let her know. Warner,
1: um, can you just touch real quick on sovereign citizens? I've had them. Oh, I've had them both in civil traffic and in small crimes.
0: Is there a best practice document at least? And and we, uh, I'm putting together a, a session with Gabe Goltz on that. Um, so. Just hang tight. If if we don't, I've got a real shorter presentation on. I call them terminators and basically you're you're not going to reason with them Um, and and it's pretty, you know, either you're either you're Mike Branham or you're not, you know, you're not a corporate entity representing the, you know, the uh, sovereign corporate state of Mike Branham. You know, if you're not Mike Branham, then fine, you're defaulted. Have a nice day. If you're not Mike Branham, I'm issuing a warrant warrant for Mike Branham's arrest, you know. to, to not you, you can't reason with them but that that you know we'll, we'll have a longer session on that mary
2: just one last thing um complaints uh on a corporation that also name a person on the complaint i usually let the parties know that the judgment will be only against abc corporation and not abc corporation and sam smith is that correct
0: if it's a contract case, then the judgment should be against the whoever the contract was with. If it is a tort, it is possible that it could be against more than one person if the company is responsible. And then if you find a reason for individual liability on an individually named person, then yes. But for a contract, it needs to be against the con- the person named in the contract.
2: All right. Anything so. else?
0: All right. Thank you everybody that this was this was a great session. I hope to see a lot of you tomorrow as well. Have a great day. Thanks everybody.